continuing our look at the minor prophets. This is our eighth. This morning marks our eighth prophet. Four to go. It's been a rich study so far. It's, uh, hopefully it's encouraged you just in general Bible reading, feeling more comfortable with this important section of your Old Testament. Um, I know there's much more that can be plumbed in the Minor Prophets than what we're doing in single overview lessons, but hopefully it takes away a little bit of the mystery from this portion of Scripture. I'm sure in some ways it's adding to some of the mystery as our minds are exposed to things that maybe we haven't studied before, but it's just been an enjoyable time, I know, for me and, and for the other men studying and teaching, and it's thankful that we've had this time to look at these 12 books. This morning we're going to be looking at Joel. I want to start our time actually in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You can just listen if you want. You can turn to Joel. You can scroll to Deuteronomy and Leviticus if you want. But starting in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Verse 22. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew and they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Verse 38. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. Of course, that section goes on much further to articulate the curses that would come upon God's covenant people if they disobeyed his law, if they transgressed his law. Now, with that in mind, now I want you to listen to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40. This is in a context very similar to what I just read in Deuteronomy, where there's an articulation of the covenant curses that will come upon the people for transgressing God's law. But listen to Leviticus 26, verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I was also acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. 
nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Then one more. Fast forward several hundred years. The temple rededication. Solomon's prayer of dedication. He starts this repeated sort of sections in his prayer asking the Lord to remember that covenant and remember his compassion and remember the people when they sin, when they come to their senses and seek the Lord. Listen with this, to the specificity with, that Solomon prays with here. 1 Kings eight thirty seven. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and spreading his hands toward this house, that is the temple, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. I read those verses as a backdrop for the prophecy, the message of Joel. We said as we started our series that God's law and the the covenant law and relationship with his people established the message that the prophets then communicate. The backdrop for every prophetic message is the Mosaic Law, the covenant blessings and curses. And what we often see are sins being carried out and the Lord condemning his people through the prophets for their failure to keep these statutes that they promised they would keep. And the curses that are then proclaimed, the judgments that are proclaimed by the prophets are the judgments that God long ago said would come. In other words, the prophets aren't sort of responding spontaneously with new judgments and new laws and new articulations of sin. They're just carrying forward what God had said when he called his people out of Egypt and set them apart as his people. So that's an important backdrop for what we see. Specifically, what I wanted you to hear this morning were the curses related to pestilence, famine, destruction of the land and in the land, which God would bring upon the people, and his promises that they would be forgiven and the land would be restored and renewed when they repent, when they turn back to the Lord. Not only back in the law of Moses, but as we heard Solomon pick that up at the temple dedication, an appeal to the Lord's grace and loving kindness, acknowledging what would happen to the people when they were disobedient, which is what? Again, he mentions pestilence, locust, destruction, suffering, which is what we have in Joel. So those are important background for this message that is before us this morning. Very brief historical background. There's not a lot of historical background available to us in Joel. His name means the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. We know who his dad is. We don't know much about his dad. Dates for Joel's ministry, highly debated. And ultimately not super important to our rightly understanding the message. 
And the debate is either that it's really early, maybe one of the earliest minor prophets, or it's really late, one of the latest minor prophets, meaning late after the exile. Either way, it's not super important for his message. If it was, God would have made it more clear. Joel has a unique perspective, the way that he unpacks his message, the, the vantage points, if you will, from how he looks at his historical circumstances and then forward. And that's really one of the keys to our understanding and grasping his prophecy. He sort of looks around at present circumstances, then he looks forward with divine foresight, then he returns to the present and calls his people to respond. Then he returns back to the future. He says, maybe this way, here's what's happened. Respond. Then he says, here's what's coming. So respond. Then he says, here's what's coming for those who do respond. And then here's what's coming for those who don't. So there's a lot of now, future, future, back to now, then back to future based on the now. Clear? It's not just one way. It's not just some mysterious message that hasn't happened yet and doesn't really concern us, and so we need to decipher it. It, He was looking at circumstances for real people at a real point in time that were really enduring God's wrath. And he was telling them, as we'll see, how they were to respond in the midst of that and what that experience pointed forward to. And then in light of what it pointed forward to, how were they and subsequent generations who would hear this message respond? There are a few ways we could summarize the the main emphasis of Joel 1 to take the words from John the Baptist and our Savior at the beginning of the Gospels with slight modification would be to say, repent. For the day of the Lord is at hand. That's the emphasis of Joel. A key question that helps us see that emphasis is Joel chapter 2 verse 11. Says the day of the Lord, this is halfway through the verse, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? One of the key questions from his message. And the answer is given. It's those who repent. Those who repent can endure it. Look at chapter 2, verse 32. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. And look at how those that are delivered, those who call upon the name of the Lord are referred to. There will be those who escape. Escape what? The wrath of the day of the Lord. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So, who will endure? Well, those who escape, those who survive. Who is that? Joel shows us, the repentant. Those who in light of the coming day of the Lord turn to him. That's, that's the message. So these historical circumstances in the time of Joel, as we'll see a, a locust plague 
that had previously occurred, those point forward to a future, bigger, uh, eschatological visitation or day of the Lord, an ultimate day of the Lord. The locusts that had come upon the people of Israel and their land that had previously occurred is a display of God's judgment and a notice of future judgment, as we'll see. And the people are to repent. And they're called explicitly to repent in light of what has happened and then in light of what Joel announces will happen. After that, which is, takes us up through chapter 2, verse 12, you see a call to repentance and then you see this picture of God's response actually to those who repent. And then Joel expands from the call to repentance and God's response and then says, here's the future that awaits those who repent. Includes a picture of God's future plans for believers, his future judgment on those who don't repent, eternal blessedness for God's people, restoration in the land, and judgment for the nations that are hardened against the Lord. So he demonstrates his commitment ultimately to those who turn to him in light of what has happened and in light of what he's pointing forward to and saying will happen. So we're going to attempt to walk through this and make our way through the whole three chapters here. And I've given you very detailed notes in your handout. Now, we're going to work through these sections. Before we do, I'll just point out, look down at some of the significant themes. I'll point those out now, and then you'll see them as we walk through. The first one, of course, is the day of the Lord. The most prominent theme for Joel compared to the other minor prophets is the day of the Lord. Now, it's certainly not the only prophet. We know that. We've seen that already, who mentions this and who talks about it. But it's very significant in Joel's book. And I've given you verses that kind of point it out. But there are different aspects of the day of the Lord that are emphasized. Its nearness and imminency are emphasized. Nearness and imminency mean that it's coming. It's impending. That's the notion all the way back then. It was impending, he says, as we'll see. It's near. And it's nearer us today than it was to Joel. The day of the Lord also comes and is a theme as it, as it concerns judgment. So much of what we see is a call to repentance in light of the day of the Lord because it, it, it's going to bring judgment. The day, that day will bring wrath, judgment. But that's not all it will bring. It will also bring salvation or deliverance for God's people. So we're thinking too plainly if we think of day of the Lord as only wrath, only judgment. It's not. The day of the Lord is judgment for God's enemies, deliverance for God's people. And we see that in Joel. Also, another key theme is repentance. Repentance. Interestingly, in this, compared to some of the other prophets, specific sin is not really detailed in the same way. It's just kind of there as a general backdrop. Right? It's like we have the other prophets and there's these sins that are referred to, they're articulated here. Joel is saying, devastation has come. That's because of your wickedness. Devastation will come. That's because of wickedness. But it's not the same type of articulation uh, of specific sins. It's more of just there in the backdrop. 
But repentance flows throughout the book. It's mainly concentrated with these key terms of return, turn, in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. But you see the responses that external responses that accompany internal repentance, those are noted throughout Joel when he's calling for lamentation and the emotional outpouring of recognizing that you are rightly being punished because of sin and that these consequences around are because of sin. And so repentance mainly, yes, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, turn or return to the Lord your God. But initially, right away in chapter 1, as we'll see, when he's saying, lament the situation and come to your senses with regard to your life as it relates to God and his purposes for you. So with regard to repentance, we see the necessity of it, that it's required, and we see the grounds for it, which is the Lord's character. And then lastly, a key theme, which, as you'll see, I give you a couple verses and then see also throughout, which is a way of saying, just read the whole letter and note it as you see it, because there's too many verses to put down. The certainty of God's sovereign purposes. That is a theme of Joel. There's a lot of God saying, I will do this. I will see to it that this happens. I will be the one that secures this. You will be my people. I will do this for you. For my name's sake, my people will be established. All of those types of things are throughout. It's God's army that's going to bring judgment. It's God that brought the locusts. It's God that will bring the nations together and call them out. It's God that will cause the land to be renewed when he sees fit that it be renewed and he will receive all the glory for that. And all of these things are portrayed as certain. God is working out his purposes. So you'll see those as we work through this. So starting back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up, and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. 
consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The backdrop is a locust plague. Joel starts off his message by emphasizing the importance that the people of Israel recognize the gravity of what's happened. That's why he says, listen to this. Has anything happened like this? The devastation was so great as he goes on to portray very graphically, very vividly. But then he says in verse 3, make sure that this message, this lesson gets communicated beyond right now. In other words, there's much to learn from what has happened in the land, what the Lord has brought on the land. And this generation and subsequent generations need to hear about it. He goes on then to articulate poetically and graphically a locust plague that had already, not future, but had already devoured the land. Verse 4 identifies all the different varieties of insects, locusts, that had gorged themselves on every green thing in the land. And he calls all who have been affected by this, which is all of the people, to respond accordingly. Why, ironically, are the drunkards that are asleep supposed to wail? Because they don't have any wine left to drink. Why are the priests upset? Because there's no grain for their offerings. It's not simply that they weren't bringing offerings into the temple. They couldn't. There wasn't anything to bring. The locusts had ravaged everything. This is in verse 7 that the vine was a waste and the fig tree splinters. And historical documentation of locust plagues would say that even bark off trees is devoured. They're stripped bare. It's so dire. Verse 8. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. This is a loss, either a newly married woman or one yet to be married whose groom has died. That's what he says the picture is. That's the devastation. That's how profound the suffering is. He articulates the way the land has been affected by this, and as we'll see later, that same land will be restored and renewed. So the impact on the land is important. Why? What did God promise his people? What do we often say because we've heard it said? A land flowing with milk and honey, right? That land's been devastated and destroyed. And so that pictures the judgment of the Lord. Just as an aside, locust plagues, you can do interesting study on locust plagues. Historically, in 1915, 
There was a locust plague that was documented in National Geographic in Jerusalem. You can go and research that. In 2020, there was locust plagues in Kenya. And so a 2020 article in the Harvard Gazette talks about this, and I was just astounded by some of the facts. It said that swarms can vary from the size of a football field to covering many, many square miles. The largest swarm ever in Kenya was over 10,000 square kilometers. Big swarms at that time in 2020 were covering a few square miles, which they said would have trillions of locusts. So they actually can't even count them. It's just so many. As, a, as an example, it said that a million locusts, so remember they say a swarm has trillions. A million locusts can consume five tons of vegetation a day. This was in the 2020 article in Harvard. Now, ironically, I, and I, this was wonderful. Here's what it says at the end of the article. I see, this is the scientist, I see the locust swarms as a message from nature. And as we're studying Joel, Joel says no, right? The locust swarms are a message from God. A very profound and pointed message from God. And that's what he's going to go on and show us. So in light of what has happened, he calls his people to respond. You see this throughout with the wailing, with the girding, with sackcloth, mourn the situation, consecrate a fast, essentially adorn yourself with a response of contrition, lamentation, and repentance. And then in verse 15, we have this first mention, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. So Joel, seeing all that's taken place, is now looking forward to something beyond what is around. So he sees the devastation, the outpouring of God's wrath, and the consequences on the people, calls them to respond accordingly, and says, the day of the Lord is near. And that's where his view starts to look forward beyond, but it's connected with what had happened. In other words, what had happened was a manifestation of God's wrath, a manifestation of an outpouring of judgment that would come further in the future. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that's where he turns his attention. So briefly, chapter 2, 1 through 11 relates to chapter 1 by essentially using the same sort of circumstances, the locust plague, and then elevating it, escalating the situation, using more extreme language, more eschatological language to refer to what will happen in the future. So there's debate, is this, is this the Assyrians in chapter 2? Maybe. Is it more locusts? Maybe. It's not the same locusts. It's future-oriented. It's something that is still to come. And it was still to come as, as, a, as a manifestation of the ultimate day of the Lord. So the key thing from chapter 2, 1 through 11 is this is ultimate. This is eschatological day of the Lord and day of wrath. So based on what he had seen, then he looks in chapter 2 and points forward. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them and nothing at all escapes them. 
Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run with a noise as of chariots. They leap on the tops of mountains. Let the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they even march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it. So there's an intensity of language. It has relationship to before. There's lines that sound like, well, this is, this is another plague to come, and it could be. But there's also more cosmic language, more destruction, more severe consequences. So Joel is transitioning from what they had experienced to what he says will come, and he's warning the people based on what they had already experienced about something that would be even worse in the future. And that question, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it, is the question that then he answers, starting in verse 12. For your own future study, just a couple connections. This question stands until the end, Revelation 6, 15 through 17. In verse 17, for the great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That question is still asked. In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 4 through 14, you see all that's happening around, and he's saying, endure. Those of you that are mine, endure to the end with faith. So chapters 2, verse 1 through 11, then an escalated view of this punishment, this day of wrath. And then verse 12, then, here's the answer. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Joel teaches us how to read eschatology. He portrays this coming day. He announces the day, its terrible awesomeness, and then he turns to the people that are there, that are hearing it, and he says, turn to the Lord. Notice very carefully that verse 12 does not say this. Yet even now, speculate about this army. Decipher from whence they come and which arms they will bear. For the one who guesses rightly will have my reward. That's often, though, how we approach prophecy. Joel gives a vision of the future, and he doesn't give them time to wonder what it means that their teeth are a certain way and that who consumes and 
do locusts march in line or is this an Assyrian army or is this some future perspective of beasts we don't even know about yet that are going to ravage? He just says, turn. The day of the Lord is coming. And all that he's described before that is to say, this is a very great and awesome day and who can endure it? And then he answers the question, those who return to a compassionate and gracious God. The vision of the future was intended to spur them to repentance. Notice he motivates their turning with this picture of the day of the Lord. And then he grounds the basis for why, why they should turn to the Lord with God's character. I'm just struck by verse 12 and 13, right? I mean, the, the classic designation of God's character in the midst of this minor prophet that if we don't read closely, we might just think, ah, it's day of the Lord stuff and interesting clues about the future. No, he says, return to a gracious and compassionate God. And again, we turn back to the words uh, by our friend George Eldon Ladd that we read at the beginning of our study on the minor prophets where he says, and this is pictured by Joel so pointedly here, the prophets took their stand in the midst of an actual historical situation and addressed themselves to it. They proclaimed God's will for the ultimate future that in its light, they might proclaim God's will for his people here and now. What was the historical circumstance? A plague, wrath. What was the future then that the prophet addressed himself to? An escalated future coming that would make the one that they had already experienced pale by comparison. And then what's the call to respond? To turn to the Lord. Chapter 18 and following, which we're not going to read for the sake of time. I'll just read a couple of verses. He then describes what would happen to those who respond. This is God's response to the repentant. He will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. Notice as you read through this that all the things that he will do address the plight of all that had happened. He's going to send new grain, new wine. They will be full with those things. So this restoration is there's physical terminology that meets the physical consequences that happen from the locust. He says he's going to remove the army that comes. He's going to drive it far away. He, he, he tells his people, which is so gracious, do not fear, verse 21. He tells them he's going to make up for the years that the locust took from them. So there's this renewal. Even remember the lament at the beginning, he says to those who were lamenting that they don't have wine, and he says the land will drip with new wine. It will overflow. The restoration from the Lord is comprehensive and is a, a, the antithesis of what they experienced from the devastation of the wrath. And the language that's used is chosen to sort of help us see that in this one-to-one way. Notice there's a prayer, or there's a question, I should say, in verse, 20, in verse 17, kind of a prayer. He says, Joel is, is reflecting, and he's asking the priest to, to weep, and he says, ask that the Lord would spare his people so that his inheritance is not a reproach and a byword among the nation. He says, why should they say among their people, people say, where is their God? And then verse 27 answers the prayer. God says, when I restore you, the repentant, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. 
You hear how he addresses the, the request in verse 17. Drilling down into verse 28, these are verses familiar to us because of Acts chapter 2. So God's going to restore his people. He's going to respond to the repentant. Verse 28, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. First, we see that as a part of God's restoration of this people and of his land, then he makes this profound promise that he will pour out his spirit on all mankind. Now, it's important in context here. It's all flesh is the literal rendering. And I think he's limiting this to the people that he's talking to. All mankind, all, all flesh of his people, of the Jews. How do we know that? Well, because it says your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. The male and female servants, basically it's from top to bottom of society, men and women, all social classes, all flesh. In Numbers eleven twenty nine, do you remember the story? When the people come to the men come to Moses, a young man comes and tells Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And Moses says, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And now Joel says, That's going to happen. When you fast forward to Acts chapter 2, Peter says that that's happening on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 16 through 21. Peter quotes this whole section in his sermon on the day of Pentecost after seeing the Spirit poured out in Jerusalem on Jews and proselytes. And they're speaking in tongues. And then he tells the people, This is that. This is what's happening. We're going to do some super fast biblical theology here. Did everything that Joel says is going to happen, happen at Pentecost? No. Right? The cosmic signs didn't happen. The sun did not turn into darkness. The moon did not turn into blood. There was no blood and fire and columns of smoke. What happened was, is that the spirit was poured out and that the, the sons and daughters spoke in tongues, right? They prophesied. And Peter says, this is that. This is a marker of the last days in this time. And we're reminded that Hebrews chapter 1 tells us what? That in these last days, Christ has spoken in his son. 1 John 2, 18, right? It is the last hour. So the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost marked the inauguration of the last days. And Peter says, this started, this happened, but not all of it. 
And interestingly, if you trace that through in, in Peter's early sermons, you go from Acts chapter 2, look at the end of Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 on your own, write down verses 37 through 40, because the same message from Joel is what Peter says to those people when they're quickened. What does he say? He says, in light of this, repent. Turn to the Lord for the forgiveness of sins, which is exactly Joel's message right? Joel wants repentance to come as a result of his teaching about the future and confidence for those who do repent. And Peter uses these verses, says this is what has started to happen. And so what should you do? Repent. Over in chapter 3 of Acts, verses 19 through 21, you see similar where he tells them again, repent so that the Lord will return. And that's helpful for us. And then into Acts 10 and 11, where Peter is surprised to see the Spirit poured out on the Gentiles. What do I say, chapter 3 and then Acts 10? Because those verses make clear that Acts 2 was not the complete fulfillment of Joel 2. We can't spiritualize all that it says in Acts chapter 2, 20, or Joel 2, 28 through 32. Peter didn't understand it that way. He initially understood it at Pentecost, I believe, to refer to the Jews that were in audience there, just as Joel was teaching, which is why Peter is astonished when God tells him to go to the Gentiles and he goes to Cornelius' house. And this language is used to see the Spirit being poured out. And then Peter tells his Jewish brethren, like, look what God's doing. So think of that as an initial fulfillment. So what do I do now? It's 10.15. What's the point of walking through what Peter did there in Acts? It's to show Peter used this prophecy in the same way that Joel used it. But Peter had more detail than Joel because part of this was happening. And the Spirit was being poured out. And the last days were being inaugurated. But not completed. And because of the totality of what Joel says is going to come in the last days, Peter then similarly says all of this is going to happen. And then he turns to the people and says, repent and believe that you may receive forgiveness. And then in three, he says, the Lord's going to come back after a certain set of things happen. And so repent. And that's what Joel's doing. Back in Joel chapter three, he moves on to now call the nations response. So he says, this is what I'm going to do for my people. This is how I'm going to respond to the repentant. And then he turns his attention toward the nations. And he brings them to the point of decision in chapter 3. He says, after he restores the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, he's going to gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And he's going to enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. So this is future as well. The Lord is going to render judgment among all peoples of the earth. And as we know from continuing to read in our Bible, the ultimate judge, as it says, as Paul says, right, in Acts chapter 17, is a man. The man Christ Jesus. The man who it says God the Father has raised from the dead and appointed as judge. And as a result of that, Paul says, 
God is now calling all people everywhere to repent. And that's the proper response to reading through what Joel says will one day happen when the Lord calls the nations together. What will be the determining factor for those who are restored and endure that day or those who don't? Will be our standing with the Lord Christ or not? Our response to him is what will differentiate between those who are judged on that day into everlasting destruction and those who are endure and enjoy, or enjoy the, the restoration and the blessing that Joel promises and that the rest of Scripture lay out for us. If you look down at your takeaways, before the ones that are written down, one takeaway is, is go read Joel, all the verses that I didn't read for you. Quick questions. Do you have confidence in the Lord's outworking of his purposes? Do you have confidence in the outworking of the Lord's purposes? That he will restore who he says he will restore, that he will judge who he says he will judge, and that he will bring it about in the timing that he has set forth. Are you confident in that? I've given references to what Pastor Rick has worked through in Ephesians to help us see some of the connections there with our New Testament teaching. Similarly, do you find comfort in the Lord's pledged presence? If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God has been poured out in your life as a pledge, as an inheritance, and that is unbelievable. You read that in Joel when he says he's going to do that, and we say, we've, we have that. We've tasted of that. And that's a pledge of something still yet to come. you comforted by that. And does the nearness of the Lord's coming motivate your pursuit of faithfulness in repentance? It's not just a minor prophet's message. 1 John chapter 2. Please go and read it. You don't want to shrink away in shame when the Lord Jesus comes back. And the one who sets their hope on the return of the Lord Christ purifies himself. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Does the nearness of Christ's coming spur you on in faithfulness in your ministry to one another? Hebrews 10, often quoted, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. So there's the church attendance verse as is the habit of some. Why? It says, or instead, what are we supposed to do? Well, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the same day that Joel is talking about. That should motivate our ministry to one another, our faithfulness to come alongside one another and spur one another on. And lastly, does it motivate us in proclaiming the good news to those who are in darkness? In darkness, because the texts that describe those on the day of the Lord who will meet him like a thief comes in the night are those in darkness. Those are the ones who need rescue, who need deliverance, who need to be called to repentance, just like Joel did, and just like Peter did in Acts 2, and just like Paul promised in Romans 10. Using Joel, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10 12. And that's a reference back to the text we just read in Joel.